让生命历历，虚空粉碎也，放心当下。Chan Chronicles, Venerable Master Xuan Hua's life and legacy kept alive through stories told by his senior disciples. In this episode, Reverend Hung Shu tells us about Master Hua's desire that all people of good faith find a home in places like the City of Ten Thousand Buddhas, regardless of their chosen religion. He would say, "It's not mine. This huge property, over seventy buildings that we purchased from the State of California in 1976." He said, "As long as people are willing to、uh, go along with our common standards of." Ethical behavior: We don't kill, we don't steal, we don't lust, we don't lie, we don't use intoxicants. That's the baseline. As long as we live that way, this city belongs to everyone. I am holding the door open for you. He would say, "He said it's yours, it's not mine." So that was how he said it. But then he lived it. He actually did it that way. I'm your host, Fabrizio Alberico. Don't forget to check out our website, dharmaradio.org, for useful links, inspiring music, and additional information on the many organizations that carry on Master Hua's legacy. We are coming to you today from the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. I'm sitting here with Reverend Hung Shur. We are going to talk about interfaith and intrafaith today, and so let's get right into it. What kind of tea are we drinking? We're drinking oolong, and oolong is a big family, and it's got a、uh, among the members of the oolong family. This is called Big Red Robe. It's the name of the, the variety. And in Chinese, it's called Da Hong Pao, and it's really good oolong tea. It's darker, darker roast, and it's funny. Even though you know all the tea in China, you know we have these cliches、um, because China is such a tea drinking nation and has been for centuries and centuries. There still is room for new varieties to come、uh, come forward and be, become popular. And The pun is: This is the hot new tea in China.、Mm-hmm. This is the new hot tea in China, and its new meaning,、uh, "big red robe," is has、uh, now become the desirable oolong variety, and it traces itself back to、uh, a legend, which is the the、um, emperor's mother was ill, and some enterprising.、Uh, Prescient individual managed to get some tea leaves into the the royal physician, who brewed up the tea and and poured it for the queen mother, and she recovered. And、uh, so, ooh, the the doctor was honored, and of course he went right back to the to the、uh, meditator. It was a, I don't know if it was a monk or not, but it was a meditator on the hillside, and said, "Where'd you get that tea?" And he pointed him to three trees that were growing on a slope at an actual, you know, kind of like you have to climb up to get to to harvest them. He said, "There they are." And、uh, so the emperor presented the physician with a big red robe, an imperial robe, which they then wrapped around the tree. And、uh, the the tree is 
still there, and although there's some question about <clears throat> is it really <clears throat> the tree, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, people, it's now protected because people go up and, and cut off some buds to try to, to transplant it. And uh, so with Chinese commerce being what it is, what we are currently drinking today, is it really Big Red Roll? Well, it sure tastes good. So you, there's a whole uh, industry in China of falsifying you know, uh, products and, and uh, making facsimiles. So we, I'm, usually people who offer tea to monks are not going to offer fake Big Red Robe. So pretty sure this is Big Red Robe Udon. Another big red robe that came from China is Master Hua. And a uh, wonderful metaphor because he was kind of unique in the in the history of China in wanting to come over to America. And one of his missions in coming here was to, to see how Buddhism could take root in this country without imposing itself, but by integrating itself. And so I wonder if you could start off by telling us when your first encounter with that concept of interfaith through Master Hua occurred. Right. At the City of 10,000 Buddhas, CTTB, up in Ukiah. Actually, we're in Talmadge, the little town next to Ukiah, which is a wide spot on the road uh, heading north on Highway 101, about 100 miles north of San Francisco, Mendocino County. Um, is the city of 10,000 Buddhas, the former Mendocino State Hospital, which became a America's largest Buddhist monastery, both in area and in numbers, in 1976. And I, uh, I that story for another time, but I worked my way to the city of 10,000 Buddhas in a unique fashion. Uh, took me two and a half years to get there <laughs> at my speed. But when I arrived in 1979, um, within one year, Master Xuanhua, the founder of City of 10,000 Buddhas and my teacher in religion, had invited a Jesuit priest, Father Thomas Hand, and a Chinese Catholic nun, Sister Agnes Lee, to um, perform a Catholic Mass in the Buddha Hall, and uh, there in the in the, the monastery worship hall. And I had been raised Methodist in Toledo, Ohio, uh, in a community that was profoundly suspicious of Roman Catholics, you know, it was like, we knew about them, you know. So there was no love lost between the, the Catholics and the Methodists where I came from. But, and so I had never had a chance to, uh, to witness a Catholic Mass. I was much more familiar with Judaism because most of my local uh, buddies and, and friends in Toledo were Jewish. I went to Hebrew school and stuff like that, but Catholics, no, no. So here was uh, Father Thomas Hand performing a Catholic Mass in the Buddha Hall. He set up the table, put the altar cloth down, and took the host and the chalice and chanted and sang, and it was, it was very... Uh, say, sacred. It was very nice. Clearly, this was something with roots. And the whatever Master Hua did invisibly to open the space for it 
uh, it fit very well. So that was, uh, was my first introduction to interfaith. And do you know anything about why Master Hua uh, invited this particular? It was consistent with his um, philosophy, you could say, his, his standard operating procedure to say a city of 10,000 Buddhas was created for people of faith and goodwill, for virtuous, kind-hearted people across the globe. It is, he would say, it's not mine. Well, this huge property, over 70 buildings that we purchased from the state of California in 1976, he said, as long as people are willing to uh, go along with our common standards of ethical behavior, we don't kill, we don't steal, we don't lust, we don't lie, we don't use intoxicants. That's the baseline. As long as we live that way, this city belongs to everyone. I am holding the door open for you, he would say. He said, it's yours, it's not mine. So that was how he said it, but then he lived it. He actually did it that way. So to have Father Tom come up and do the Mass was perfectly in line with, with his, his standards of uh, what, what he had in mind for the city of 10,000 Buddhas. Then there was another round of uh, encounters with uh, a diocesan Catholic priest who was uh, also a uh, professor at Humboldt State University in the philosophy department. And uh, he regularly led his philosophy students from Humboldt State down to City of 10,000 Buddhas once a semester to do a monastic weekend encounter. And so that was another opportunity. It's called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. It's called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. It started with a vow to bring enlightenment to every living being. From the sage who brought the Buddha and the Dharma and the Sangha to America to build a new foundation. It's called the City of 10,000 Buddhas. It's founded on a vision of the proper Dharma flourishing again. It's a place for cultivation. It's a place for transformation of the common one to a bodhisattva. The next most significant example of how Master Hua did interfaith uh, came from the ordinations that we did. And our ordinations, uh, when, you, when you ordain monks and nuns, when you make new monks and nuns, it's a, it's a sacred moment where these, those traditions go directly back to the Buddha. The formulas you use, the, the uh, uh, procedure, the, the order of things, and, and definitely the atmosphere. There's a solemnity in a this is a lifelong commitment in the Buddhist way of doing it. And from the earliest times in Buddhism, even during the Buddha's lifetime, there were schisms within the Sangha. There were times when people simply couldn't live together. And there's famous episodes of the Buddha retreating out into the woods because he couldn't abide the arguments going on in the monastery among his disciples. He would just say, just tell me when you're done, I'll be back, you know, and he would go off into the woods and meditate. And 
So with all the schisms, uh, one of the most significant schisms was between, uh, depends on the language you use, but there was what, what we call the Mahayana and Theravada, uh, translated as the large vehicle and the elders. Mahayana is the large vehicle and Theravada means the path of the elders. There are pejorative terms too. There's nasty words for, for there's the great vehicle and the smaller vehicle which is used as a weapon, those, that language. Master Hua would say it's the southern tradition, Theravada, that includes Buddhism that centers around Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, other places, and the northern tradition, which is the Buddhism that accrued around China, Korea, Japan, Vietnam, and then on to Tibet, Mongolia. Um, so we learned to say Theravada Mahayana. That split happened in the Buddha's lifetime and has not healed, has not come back together. So Master Hua in America, he said, I want you all to be very clear. What I am teaching you is not Chinese Buddhism. It's not limited to one culture, one ethnicity, one set of practices. And he said, it's not Indian Buddhism either. It's not Theravada, it's not Mahayana. It's the Dharma, the teachings on the mind ground. Buddhism that comes from the nature. And to back that up, every time we've had ordinations at the City of 10,000 Buddhas here in America, and we're into our 14th occasion, on the platform, the uh, senior monks and nuns who are doing the ordaining come from the Chinese tradition, from the Thai tradition, from the Sri Lankan tradition, from the Vietnamese tradition, and, and so forth. We have multi-yana ordinations. Mahayana, Hinayana, Vajrayana. We haven't had Vajrayana yet, but someday maybe. So there's uh, interfaith. It's intra-faith within the body of Buddhism itself. Mm -hmm. So that's that was a indelible pointing towards interfaith. Mm -hmm. And so, so since 1979, have you seen a, a movement towards healing that schism? Definitely, by example, just by doing it. Uh, the latest example, um, well, one important moment was when Master Shenhua uh, heard that Ajahn Sumedho, who is the uh, Dharma heir of the Venerable Ajahn Chah, the Thai forest tradition elder, Master Hua heard that Sumedho was looking for a home in America for a monastery. They had been primarily in England and at the time. So Master Hua uh, invited me to, told me, instructed me to get Sumedho, uh, bring him down to L.A. where Master Hua was. And so I said, Ajahn Sumedho, would you like to go with me to, to L.A.? Master Hua has a question for you. Yes, I would, he said. So we got on the airplane, flew down to West Covina, and Master Hua said, Sumedho, I hear you're looking for land. Why, yes, I am. We are, he said. Master Hua said, well, I have land that's looking for a monk. He said, I've got 120 acres of Mendocino County mountains I'd like to give to you. Will you accept it? Why, yes, I will, <laughs> he said. That was the beginning of Abhayagiri Forest Monastery, which is now a thriving Theravada monastery. So there's, you know, interfaith sharing. Uh, and recently... Uh, just in the last month, this is, uh, we're now in November of 2017, the fires, 
came to Northern California. Mm -hmm. And the fires in Redwood Valley, Mendocino County, although it's slightly farther north than the most destructive fire, which is in Santa Rosa, it burned no less fiercely. 800 structures were destroyed in a town, little town of 6,000 called Redwood Valley. And uh, Abayagiri Forest Monastery did not burn. But the monks, that's another story to tell, but the monks did evacuate that night, that Sunday night, Monday morning. And by the the second day, we'd had them, we brought them to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, where the 26 members of the community spent the next week waiting news for their, of their property, which was good news. In Mm -hmm. the midst of destruction, that was a bright light. So the sharing is real. And uh, we regularly uh, attend their ordinations and their lectures and and vice versa. So there's that. And they have regular events here at the Berkeley Monastery. They do. do. uh, The Berkeley Monastery has a second name. This is the Institute for World Religions at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery. And it was set up as a place for interface sharing. Um, We're, you know, just 15 minutes walk from the UC Berkeley campus. So it's a big gateway for lots of students coming and going and professors. So Master Hua early on was looking for a uh, dean of the Institute for World Religions before it was established here at uh, in, in Berkeley. And he invited an old friend of his, the Roman Catholic Cardinal of China, Paul Cardinal Yubin, who in 1949, like many people, fled to Taiwan. But he had been the Catholic Cardinal in Shanghai before. Now, there's a, an amazing story here that I was witness to. Um, in While I was doing this pilgrimage that I mentioned to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, um, on occasionally Master Hua would come down to Los Angeles to, to lecture. We had a brand new monastery, Gold Wheel Monastery in South Pasadena, which is where my pilgrimage began. And uh, Master Hua would come down and spend the weekend, and myself and my bowing companion, two monks, would mark our place on the highway and get in a layman's car, drive to L.A., and then bow outside the monastery and go in at night to listen. We would spend the night in in the car. And uh, so... One, one of those visits, that happened maybe six times during the two and a half years. And uh, one of those visits, uh, Master Hua came out to where we were on the sidewalk, bowing in place, and said, I've got somebody you, to meet. Uh, you want to go with me? And, you know, uh, yes, Servo. Oh, yeah, we do. So we got in the car, drove to another neighborhood in L.A., and uh, we went into this ranch house, and there was nobody there to greet us. Uh, I mean, the, the host put us in the living room and we were waited for the, for, the, for his other guest and this very tall Chinese Catholic with a big cross on his chest and a purple skull cap came down and said I very much like the sound of your voice you sound so familiar and Master Hua said he said so we are, of course you do, of course I sound familiar. We are those, we are two people who know each other's sound. We are, that's the translation of soulmate, hmm. right? How could he say that? 
Paul Cardinal Yubin grew up in the same hometown as Master Xuanhua in far off Manchuria. Wow. And they never met each other growing up, but, but both of their mothers, Master Hua's mother, Madame Bai, and Madame Yubin, the, the mother of Cardinal Yubin, used the example of the other child who had, they both had reputations growing up, to discipline their own sons. Mm-hmm. Madame Yubin would say, why can't you be more like filial son Bai? You see how good he is to his mother? How are you so disobedient? Cardinal Yubin said, well, and then Master Hua says, yeah, my, my mother used to say, what about that Yubin boy? You should behave like he does. He's really good to his mother. Mm-hmm. So, and yet they never met until that day in Los Angeles. Wow. And immediately they just became thick as thieves. They became best friends. The leader of Roman Catholic faith in China and Master Xuanhua, the patriarch of Mahayana Buddhism. So they, Master Hua immediately invited him to, to take charge of the, the Institute for World Religions, which he accepted. And uh, then <laughs> there's another great story of uh, Master Hua told later. He said, well, in, in my heart, I wanted to see if I could get you bent to bow to the Buddhas. Because that would be it. Ah. And so he said, we went to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, and, and uh, I was, I didn't have to translate because they spoke perfect Mandarin to each other, Manchurian-accented Mandarin. And, uh, but I was there to listen. And so Master Hua said, uh, Cardinal Yubin, he says, I, I have a proposal for you. He said, uh, I would like you to be the Buddhist among the Catholics. Cardinal Yubin's brow knits, you know, <laughs> a little, that, hmm, what? Sour expression. And uh, Master Hua says, now, now, don't, don't misunderstand me. He said, I would like you to be the Buddhist among the Catholics, and I volunteer to become the Catholic among the Buddhists. Mm-hmm. He said, this way, with the two, world's two major religions getting along, he says, we'll put an end to war. What do you say? Cardinal slapped his knee and said, I'll do it. It's called the city of 10,000 Buddhas. It starts with care for aging people, filial behavior in the home. When the family is happy, then the cities will be peaceful. The nations and the worlds will come together. It starts at city of 10,000 Buddhas. And so give us an idea of what it was like in China in those days when they were growing up in terms of Catholicism versus Buddhism, which was more prominent. And are there other religions that, uh, that were in play in China at the time? It's a, it's a really good question, and I'll have to, to tailor my answer because this is to, to do a, a thorough job would, would take longer than we have. But the background for religion, for interfaith in China uh, is fascinating because every thinking Chinese is an interfaith conversation. That is to say, the notion of religion is kind of foreign to China. The idea that you have a creed and that you follow a single deity, a monotheistic creator or figure who's a male, you know. Is that related to Confucianism? uh, Yes. Well, that's part of the answer. Mm -hmm. 
I was going to say that's not a typical understanding of religion that most any Chinese would have. They say that every Chinese who is who is thoughtful, who is you know aware of religious identity, is three things in one, three faiths in one. They say every Chinese wears Taoist sandals, a Buddhist robe, and a Confucian hat. Ah. So during the week when they go to work, they're Confucian. They they're responsible to society. They understand their roles vis-a-vis a boss, vis-a-vis a spouse, vis-a-vis children, vis-a-vis friends, vis-a-vis the, you know, a, uh, uh, a ruler of the nation. Further, when they come to the weekend and they go out to the mountains, they're Taoists. They are one with nature. They seek unity with the water, with the earth, with the fire, with the wind and uh, all of creation. And then uh, when they look into the mind or at the time of death, they're Buddhists because they return to everything that is, you know, and lose the identity entirely. No Hmm. nature, you know, and one with nature at the same time. So that's kind of, that's interfaith in every Chinese, all right? So here now, guess what happens? Christianity arrives in China. And this is where the the answer to your question gets really complicated, because why? Um, When Christianity arrived, it arrived with gunboats, it arrived with opium, it arrived with this sudden realization that the West had science, and science brought with it gunpowder and weapons and bombs. And the Chinese had had always had gunpowder from you know, the Han Dynasty from 2,000 years, but they never used it militarily to destroy. So suddenly the Chinese realized they had to catch up. They were at that point called the sick man of Asia, right? So Christianity came in with all of this allure of scientific progress. So people embraced Christianity and whatever it, it the God that it brought along was fine because it filled this sense of China being luohou, being hopelessly backwards. Hmm. And uh, so people embraced Christianity in China not so much for the benefits of the monotheistic view that they're going to heaven. Um, they, had, they already had a whole spiritual context for their faith, but it, was, it came on the shoulders of scientific progress and China coming out of the Dark Ages and losing that un- uncomfortable mantle of the sick man of Asia, et cetera. So that's why I say it's, it's a mm-hmm. thick answer to, you know, it's not a simple answer. So today, what do you see as the, as the biggest challenges to interfaith and intrafaith? The way Master Hua brought Buddhism in was realizing that we're the new kid on the block, speaking of religions. Their Buddhism has only been in this country for, in, in our form for a century, in a monastic form. And it's still defining itself. We don't know what Buddhists will be like in America, what American Buddhism will be like. But history repeats itself, and we've 
you know, every time Buddhism has jumped a continent or, or a language base or a food base, you know, uh, it has reinvented itself. It has influenced the new culture that it joins and been influenced by it. So if that pattern is the same, then there will be an American Buddhism before long. We're in that formative period right now. And what I saw Master Hua do was encourage us at every hand, at every step, to bring the principles of the Dharma, the, the teachings of the Buddha, bring the principles of wisdom and compassion into engagement with the West, with Western culture. So he wanted to bridge East and West. So those two things. One is in, engage Western culture with our understanding of the Dharma and make a bridge from East to West so that, uh, for example, um, with music, with our schools, with art, with food, with filiality, our relationship inside families between generations, with technology, uh, literature, in every aspect of our lives as we engage the culture, not just personal meditations or whatever, but as soon as we uh, go into society and speak or act or think, Master Hua wanted us to reference the principles of wisdom, which is how he defined Buddhism, and bring it to bear in our engagement with the West. That's interfaith in a profound way. And it's not just religions talking to religions. Oh, here come the monks. Here come, you know, let's, let's go meet the Jews. Um, or encounter, you know, have a dialogue with Muslims. It's not, it's more than that. You know, it includes that, but it's more than that. It's not just intra-faith, Buddhist healing its own split, but it has to do with, do I use Buddhist perspectives as I uh, consume resources, for example? When I, if I leave the water tap running when I brush my teeth, that's greed. You know, oh, okay, thank you. Buddhism actually helps. If I feel, uh, if I allow thoughts of anger to have me raise my voice at my mom or my spouse, you know, that's anger. And that's, that's cutting at the roots of my being, you know, and that's not a wise thing to do. So that's, to me, is interfaith. It's, it's taking, uh, and that, I'm giving you two negative examples, but a positive example would be um, every time I think to repay kindness that comes to me from the country that I'm, the peaceful country that I, that I, whose water I drink, whose food I consume every day, if I think to repay that kindness and recognize it, then I live in gratitude. And that sense just expands my heart. And while it's not exclusively a Buddhist idea, it is a Buddhist idea. And I, it strengthens my Buddhist practice every time I think to improve my humanity. There's interfaith, you know, and I'm a better American for doing that. And Buddhism changes the culture. I was not raised to be filial. I was raised age 16, get your driver's license, bye-bye, mom and dad, I'm out of here. Take the family station wagon to the highway. Mm -hmm. you know? And you don't look back. But that's impoverished, you know, that's broken from the principles of connection 
to parents and gratitude. So Buddhism gave me that uh, sense of connection, healing that break. And when I live that way, I'm changing the culture because I'm authentically an American, but I'm a wiser American for having been a Buddhist. Now, are those principles consistent across all streams of Buddhism, if you will? And in, including, because I'm, I'm thinking about um, for the average listener who um, is not really too familiar with all the intricacies of Mahayana versus Theravada versus mm. Vajrayana, um, they have a certain perception of Buddhism that centers around meditation and around uh, peacefulness and very kind of abstract concepts. Um, I'm wondering how uh, the intra-faith within Buddhism, is there enough consistency there and is there enough working together to, um, or does there, does there need to be a working together to kind of uh, affect the, the culture and uh, integrate itself into the, the common uh, language and the common way of doing things that will have a, a significant impact in in healing what needs to be healed in, in mm -hmm. this country and other Western countries? Well, I would hope so. I, I can't speak for uh, all of Buddhism, certainly, but my own experience is that I started out in Zen. I was doing meditation, Zazen. And uh, my, my college roommate, uh, David Bernstein, uh, when the first day I arrived at my college dormitory in a little liberal arts school in Michigan, opened the, my dorm room, and here he was sitting in meditation. And uh, we were both college freshmen, but his brother had encountered Korean Zen in Providence, Rhode Island, and David was learning from his brother and was practicing Zazen. So within a week, I was meditating with my roommate, David. Um, and so that was age 19, you know, age 18, I guess. And so I pursued that. And then in, as a junior in college, my professors um, allowed me to encourage me to take a semester abroad. And I went to Donghai University in Taiwan uh, to study Mandarin. And then I had met Gary Snyder, the poet and uh, natural philosopher uh, who I'd met him in San Francisco in his apartment before I left, and he had put me on to addresses in Kyoto, and he said, go look up Rumgard Schlegel and, and Daitokoji and see if they're taking Westerners, and if not, go here. You know, So he gave me some places. And uh, sure enough, when I uh, left Donghai and went on my own to uh, Kyoto, Japan, this is 1969, um, I found my way to a place called Antaiji, which is a uh, a Soto Monastery in the north of Kyoto and uh, met uh, Uchiyama Kosho Roshi and Uchiyama Roshi and, and uh, began my stay as a Zen novice in, in Antaiji. Um, so that was my understanding of Buddhism. Buddhism was meditation and it was, it was a good form. You know, shikantaza, only pay attention to your sitting is what Dogen Zenji uh, filtered down through the Eheji tradition of, of Soto Zen. And I came back from that thinking I was a hotshot Buddhist, you know, and I was the only one who'd been to Japan in my community and, and lived in a Zen monastery, and boy, oh boy, oh boy. But there was something missing in the, the, uh, the practice, which was a commitment to an ethical framework 
that I, I noticed, and I think I wasn't alone. Uh, it's kind of like when you get up from meditation, anything goes. Uh, hmm. And that didn't seem to connect. And then when I met Master Hua, um, he said, well, it's not so much samadhi prajna, it's shila samadhi prajna. You went to the second step. Samadhi is the stillness of meditation, which Americans seem to love and need, and we gravitate to this, this stillness and clarity, concentration and focus, leading to wisdom. He said that's not exactly how the Buddha taught it. The Buddha said the first step is to put your house straight. The first step is to look at your behavior, body, mouth, and mind, and there are standards. There actually are standards. It's not anything goes. Although you're free to do anything goes, but what you get is fractured samadhi. You won't be able to sit still if you kill, steal, lust, lie, or drug, or intoxicate. That will obstruct the samadhi you're looking for, and then the wisdom will be incomplete, partial. So if you conform to those standards, which interestingly enough, ha, this is the answer to your question, when you look at the Ten Commandments, you get four out of those five. The Ten Commandments don't talk about intoxicants, but thou shalt not, right, kill, steal, mm-hmm. cohabit, you know, and, and lie. And then you look at the yoga aphorisms of Patanjali, and there you go, they're there, and you look at the Holy Quran, which is pretty much an ethical text as far as I can tell, and you have the same standards. You know, so here we have Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism all saying there is a definition for basic humanity, which will further you in your spiritual practice. And what I like about the Buddhist version of it is it's not judgmental. It's not that the Buddha likes you more if you do these things. It's that if you decide that you want to move your meditation down the road in the, into the form that he recommended, that he actually did himself, the Buddha, then here's how you start, because this will work better. Very pragmatic. Very pra- mm-hmm. Get better results if you avoid killing, stealing, lusting, and lying. If you intoxicate and then meditate, it's very frustrating because your mind is chaotic. So that's, that's, there's the common ground. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, Americans can get that and there's, for example, a wonderful story by Robert Aitken, the late Robert Aitken, who was the founder of what became known as the Diamond Sangha, another American Zen group. And he writes in this book called Mind of Clover. He says, uh, they, Aitken was one of the early generation of, of early, one, early Buddhist adopters like Gary Snyder and Philip Whelan and, and Allen Ginsberg and the others. And uh, he said, we... We all like to meditate, and we, all, we got a big communal house, all the Zeni types in Hawaii. And he said there was no understanding of the ethical framework. And he said that we would be meditating in the day, and then at night we'd be playing musical beds upstairs in the, in the dorm part of the, of the building. And he says within a month we were at each other's throats. And if we'd continued that way, we would have just totally destroyed each other and jealousy and infighting and, and you know, uh, just all kinds of, of mischief. And he said, I, I myself understood this This couldn't be what the Buddha had in mind. So he looked into the traditional texts and discovered that the shila, 
S-I-L-A, the Sanskrit word just means the ethical component, was always part of successful, long-lasting Sangha. And the Buddhist monastic Sangha has been together for 2,500 years, largely because of that foundation. We said, we're going to have some training rules. We're going to have code of conduct. And, if, and it involves staying out of each other's beds, primarily, and not smoking dope or drinking alcohol and then meditating. So he said, we, we all, all agreed. We had a big community meeting. We agreed on rules of conduct, standards of behavior. And he said, it was the, the glue that stuck us together and we're still together. That was the difference. So I notice uh, Spirit Rock, the Insight Meditation community, has very firm uh, code of conduct, particularly between teacher and student, which comes from, you know, Jack Hornfield, Joseph Goldstein's experience with the Thai monastic Buddhist community, with the Sangha. They both ordained. And they returned to lay life and disrobed, but they kept the standards. As a result, the Insight Meditation community is thriving. So there's something that not only Buddhists share in common, is these five precepts, the five basic panchasila, it's called in Pali, the wujie in Chinese, but the five precepts. This is um, shared not only among Buddhists, but across the, it's the foundation of successful religious communities worldwide. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the Insight uh, community comes to the Berkeley Monastery on Thursday evenings. They do, they do, and have for 22 years. Mm -hmm. James Barris is the, the founding Spirit Rock uh, teacher who came, uh, it used to be called uh, Spirit Rock East Bay. Now it's the East Bay Insight, Medi Insight Community. And uh, James is still the founding teacher. And uh, they've found a home here every Thursday night. And we all agree on those fundamental standards for mm -hmm. not only for successful meditation, but also for becoming a good person. concludes this episode of Chan Chronicles. Many thanks go out to the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery and Reverend Hung Shur for their hospitality. Our website, once again, dharmaradio.org, has much more for you to click through. And don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you'll be sure to receive new episodes of Chan Chronicles as soon as they're available. Amitofo. <laughs>